I thought I'd start out today by sharing with you one of my favorite uh, little advertisements that I found in a newspaper recently. So it says, construction workers needed. Please do not apply if you oversleep, have court often, do not have a babysitter every day, have to get rides to work later than our workday begins, experience flat tires every week, have to hold on to a cell phone all day, or if you will become an expert at your job with no need to learn or take advice after the first day. Must be able to talk and work at the same time. Must also remember to come back to work after lunch. We should not expect to receive gold stars for being on time. If you qualify, please leave your name and number. The passage we read today is, I think, in some ways, God's sort of help wanted ad, or at least one of them that he gives us in scriptures. Um, it's a little bit more demanding than the one that I just read out, though. Um, and in fact, it's kind of interesting because I often hear complaints from all of my friends who are looking for jobs that uh, jobs nowadays require at least three master's degrees and still only pay about $10 an hour. Um, well, God's giving us pretty lofty demands here um, and generally paying less than $10 an hour. In fact, um, let me check my notes to make sure this is right, but ruling elders this year at Las Tierras will be paid exactly $0.00. And zero cents. Um, Pretty sure I got that right. So, why even take the job? <laughs> why, if you're not going to be an officer, why even volunteer at church or teach Sunday school or help out at the nursery? Um, I hope you know the answer to this, but just in case you don't, let me give you a reminder of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So, this is why we serve. Whatever it is that you do in the church, whatever it is that you are called to do, because your reward is infinitely greater than money could possibly ever be. Because those of you that do get a paycheck know it's gone pretty quick. Um, but today we're going to take a look at what are here called overseers, what we commonly call in this church elders, but sometimes might be called shepherds or even pastors. And I want you to remember this morning, even if you are not called and you are pretty sure you never will be called, um, one of the reasons why it's important for all of us to take a look at this is because we as a congregation have the privilege and responsibility of choosing who those overseers are. So even if you are not aspiring to meet necessarily these criteria, it is your responsibility to look out for the people that do and encourage the people that do. Um, but I also want you to think, particularly if you are parents of young boys or who will grow up to be young men, potentially as leaders in the church, that these are the sorts of qualities that God wants you to encourage in them. If you are married to a man, these are the sorts of qualities you want to encourage in them as well. If you are a mentor to somebody, these are the sorts of qualities that God is looking for in the leaders of his church and that we should be striving to instill in all of the men that we have relationships with. So, the first uh, qualification that we see here 
They don't start easy. <laughs> starts with the phrase above reproach. An overseer should be above reproach. Um, on the surface, it kind of sounds like almost a call for perfection. I don't think it's quite that because, you know, we'd never have any overseers except Jesus, if that were. Um, but really, I think what's in view here in this first one is a requirement that elders should not be engaged in public sin or what sometimes is called heinous sin, right? Um, the sort of sin that would bring reproach on the church and therefore bring reproach on the king of the church, Christ himself. I think it's a sober reminder to all of us, whether we are leaders or not, that the world often looks at Jesus and gets their glimpse of Jesus through us as a mirror. When we are involved in public and heinous and gross sin, that reflects upon Christ himself as the king of the church, the one whose name we claim when we say that we are Christians. So, sorry. Rather than being engaged in public sin, we are called, as Jesus again says in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our good works, then, are not to reflect well upon ourselves. But our good works here, it says, let them see your good works so that they may glorify God in heaven. What we do is a reflection on who God is and who we claim to follow. And on the flip side, when we are hypocritical, when we are engaged in these very public sins, when we claim to love God, it's God's name then that is often dragged through the mud and demeaned in the world. The second requirement we see is the husband of one wife. And this one, at least on the surface, should be relatively easier than that first one, right? I don't think, as far as I know, that anybody here is uh, promoting polygamy. Last I checked. Nobody? Good. Um, but I think that's a little bit too simple of a view of it. Right? This is not simply a charge against polygamy, though it is that. Please don't take me as saying here that polygamy is okay. No. But there's more to it than that. And also, I don't think this is inherently disqualifying of an unmarried man. Right? Paul himself, one of the great leaders of the church, often talks about the advantages of his singleness. Right? Rather, it's really looking for a character trait. It's really... Uh, often translated instead of being husband of one wife as the man of one woman, or what you might say like a one woman kind of guy, right? It's a man, in view here, is more the faithfulness of the man than necessarily the number of wives that he has, though that may be a reflection of his faithfulness, right? If a man is married, it is not simply enough to just be married to one woman. You should be devoted to that one woman that you are married to. If you are married to one woman, but you ignore and neglect them, you are not qualified to be a leader in God's church. Right? If you are a married man who likes to look at every other woman that passes you other than your wife, you are not qualified to be a leader in God's church. If you're an unmarried man, there are plenty of other relationships in which you can be faithful while you are still unmarried, whether those be dating relationships or even friendships. 
Because what's in view here is that a man who is faithful in his life, in his other relationships, is far more likely to be faithful to the church. The third qualification we see here is that a overseer should be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. So in a lot of ways, I think these relate back to what we talked about in the first one, being above reproach, particularly where we see respectable there. But I think it's also interesting to view that these are one of the most sought-after leadership qualities in the secular world as well. Have any of you worked for a boss who is not sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable? It's not a lot of fun, is it? Right? So look at kind of the flip side of these, right? You don't really want a boss who's impulsive, right? Which would be sort of the opposite of somebody who's sober-minded, somebody who doesn't think things through, somebody who's not self-controlled and simply does whatever comes to mind first. Those are not good qualities in a leader anywhere, whether we're talking about the church, the government, or your workplace. And I think many of us have probably worked for bosses who have one of these, or lack one of these character traits, and it shows. The next requirement here that we see is that an overseer is called to be hospitable. And I think particularly being here at Las Tierras has shown me one of the importance of this because so many times throughout the years I've talked to people when they first come or when they've come through and left because it happens a lot here in El Paso where we have the military community where people come and go and so often it's been very difficult for many of these people to find a church home after they leave Las Tierras and the reason why I think is because this is one of our strengths as a church thanks be to God is that we are hospitable they don't usually word, use the word hospitable, though, right? But so many times I'm told that when, from the first time I walked through the door, somebody said hello to me, somebody welcomed me, somebody I didn't know who didn't even speak my language took my baby and was playing with them, <laughs> right? These are the sorts of traits that we're looking for when we're talking about hospitality. We're talking about being welcoming. We're talking about treating people like family, opening up your homes and inviting people in. And these are the sorts of things that we want to do as a church, but things that our leaders in particular should also be modeling for us. Then it also says that an overseer should be able to teach. Um, In the PCA, we have technically two offices, but I've always said that we really have two and a half offices. We have elders and we have deacons when you're talking about the government, but the elders are broken into two categories. We have teaching elders and ruling elders. But the Bible doesn't necessarily make that distinction. And it says here that all overseers should be able to teach. That doesn't necessarily mean that all elders are going to stand in the pulpit every week and teach you from here. But it does mean that as elders of the church, you should know the basic doctrines of the church. Probably a little beyond the basics. You should know the doctrine of the church and be able to explain that to somebody else. Right? It doesn't mean you have to preach. It doesn't mean they have to necessarily teach in large groups, even Sunday school. But you should be able to understand and explain those important doctrines of the church to members who have questions and to anybody who's interested in becoming a member and has those questions. Right? So if 
you are looking at somebody and you think maybe they would be an elder, if you have questions, ask them. If they can't explain it to you, they're probably at least not ready yet. Doesn't necessarily mean they never will be, but they probably are not ready yet to serve in that office because an overseer should be able to teach. Next, we see that the overseer should not be a drunkard. Right? And in the PCA and in many other uh, churches, we don't necessarily view this as a hard and fast rule against alcohol. Right? Um, we look at other passages where Jesus is involved with his first miracle in changing water to wine, and we say we don't believe that this is a blanket statement that you can never have a drop of alcohol touch your lips. Nor do I think it is simply a ban on just necessarily drunkenness, alcoholism. But I think it's showing us something of the heart of an addict. If you are addicted to something, there is something in your life that is more important to you than God. And that will come out and it will create turmoil and it will create chaos. Whether that is an addiction to alcohol, whether that is an addiction to gambling, which can lead to horrible financial decisions and painful uh, turmoil in a family, whether that is an addiction to drugs, prescription or street drugs, whatever the case may be, which will also lead to serious damage in relationships, serious impairment of decisions as we've all seen, or even if you turn something good, a gift of God into an idol or an addiction, like a sex addiction, which has caused collapses of marriages, has caused pain in many, many, many circumstances, and can lead to what we mentioned at the beginning, those very public and heinous sins. So, this here, when we see this phrase drunkenness, yes, that is part of it, alcoholism, but it goes beyond that. If you have an addiction, if there's something that pulls on your heart stronger than God, you are certainly in no place to become a leader of the church and you are in a place where you need to get some serious help because it will cause significant pain if it hasn't already. The next thing that an overseer is called to do is to be not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. And I think this goes back to the call for an overseer to teach. If an elder is called to teach and to share the gospel and to provide an example of that to the congregation, the man should not be quarrelsome. That is not a good way to win a debate. Maybe if you're having an academic debate, there's some place for quarrelsomeness, but you're probably not going to change the other guy's mind by being quarrelsome. You might win, but you didn't change their mind, you didn't change their heart. You didn't do what God has called you to do. So rather, what you want to see in a leader and what we are all called to do when we engage with people that we disagree with is to show the gentleness, patience, calmness, particularly in the face of disagreements, which is one of the hardest things to do if you're anything like me because I want to win the argument. I don't want to listen to what they have to say. I don't want to be patient and calm and try. I just want to get to the end and, and be right. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be winsome. We're called to listen. We're called to love. We're called to gentleness and not violence and not quarrelsomeness. An officer of the church should not be a lover of money. 
they are often have access to financial information and financial accounts and make financial decisions for the church. It is incredibly important that leaders in the church put the needs of the church above their own love of money. We have a really powerful example of how this can go wrong in the Bible's most famous villain, Judas Iscariot, who famously sold Jesus himself for 30 pieces of silver. But it started before that. It doesn't start with selling Jesus. It starts with littler things. And if you go back and you look at John 12, you'll see that Judas was really upset at Jesus for wasting perfume. Right? Oh, how dare you do that? That that could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. But it tells us there that Judas only said that because he was in charge of the money that was supposed to go to the poor and he was stealing it. It started with what he could kind of justify. Oh, I'll give some of it to the poor and keep some for myself. I'll keep some. And his love of money grew and grew and grew until he was willing to sell Jesus himself for 30 pieces of silver. The next one that it says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? Um, And I think this one's probably the most difficult for me. Um, I was already yelling at my son this morning. (laughs) Um, But the basic idea here is that the way you run your household is sort of an audition for the way that you will run the church. If you cannot manage your own household well, how will he care for God's church? But if you manage your household well, then you have the skills, the tools, the gifts also needed to manage God's church well. But notice exactly what it says, though. It doesn't say that an elder's children should be perfect. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Because I know mine aren't. (laughs) But rather, it's focused on how the individual leads their household. It's how you respond to your children when they sin that's in view here, because it's assumed that they will, right? I mean, we can go plenty of other places. If you want to go back to my last sermon, it was all about literally how all of us sin all the time, all, every day, everywhere. <laughs> um, so I won't go back into that too much, but it's assumed that they will. And so it, what's in view here is how do you respond? Do you respond in godly love and discipline and teaching your children or do you simply allow the behavior to continue or do you rule with an iron fist which is also not the way that we're called to raise our children do you teach them why it is that what they're doing is wrong and how they should respond do you discipline them lovingly because in many ways I think we as a church we as congregants are similar to children, right? God called, we are the children of God, right? We are imperfect. We disobey. We're willful. We are willful and stubborn. We will fall. And when we do, we hope that God and the leaders of the church in his name will show the same godly mercy and teaching in their discipline as a good father does to his children. The next 
qualification is he must not be a recent convert or he might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I don't know if any of the rest of you are a sports fan, but I'm a big soccer fan. And I think every year there's at least like six, like 15, 16, 17 year old kids who are like, that's going to be the next Lionel Messi. He's going to be the next great player. Or if you like basketball, the next Michael Jordan. This kid in high school, he's going to be the next Michael Jordan. You know how many of them become the next Michael Jordan? Like one out of 10,000. Right? LeBron James did it. (laughs) Right? One out of every 10,000. Because so many, despite this immense, obvious talent, simply lack the maturity to deal with these expectations that we've placed on them. They're 16. Of course they do. They're 16. 16 year olds are inherently immature. It's part of the process. (laughs) Right? In fact, I can think of, just off the top of my head, four different players who were labeled the next Lionel Messi, whose careers have gone so far awry, they're playing in the U.S. And if you know anything about soccer, that's not good. (laughs) So, the same thing here with officers of the church. To succeed as an officer of the church, yes, you need gifts, you need the talents, you need the skills, but you also need the maturity that comes with time in the church, time spent in the word, and a more mature relationship with God. So unlike the sports analogy we just had earlier, it's not necessarily just about your age, right? It's about your time and your walk with the Lord. You could have a man who's 25 but been a Christian since childhood, And they have a level of spiritual maturity far greater than somebody who's 60, but maybe has only been a Christian for six months. But that same sort of concept applies, we just have to think in a spiritual age, if you will, rather than the physical age. It takes time to grow and mature and to become ready. The last qualification we see here is is this. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. I think it's kind of an interesting way to end and it kind of brings us back to some of what we talked about at the beginning. But I think it's a good warning to a lot of us because a lot of times we like to point at passages that say we're going to be persecuted. People aren't going to like us for the message that we share. And there's certainly truth to that. But oftentimes we use that as an excuse to purposefully hurt people with the message. Where we as the messengers are the insult and not the message of Christ. The way that we share it becomes coarse and unloving. And so it's interesting to see here that an elder, a leader in the church, is actually called to be well thought of by outsiders. Doesn't necessarily mean they'll be well liked all the time. Doesn't mean their message is going to be well liked all the time. But there should be some level of respect and understanding that, look, I may not agree, I may not like the message, but at least I can have some respect for the fact that they're living their life in a consistent manner, that they're preaching in a consistent manner, that they're not hypocritical, they're not so much, because that's the, I think the accusation that's leveled against church and church leaders so often is that hypocrisy. We say one thing, we go out and do another. And so a leader in the church is called to be different because what we do reflects upon God and upon his church. I want to leave you then with one final thought though, which is 
what do we do when we see a list of qualifications like this and we fear we don't measure up? What do you do if you're considering maybe I could be an officer or you already are and you look at this and you go, I don't measure up to this? Or if you're not an officer, what do you do when you turn to a passage like Ephesians chapter 4 that tells us how we are called to live just as Christians, every single one of us? In Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, say this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of the redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you're anything like me, if you read a passage like this, you think, I can't do that. So let me tell you today, don't worry. It's true. You can't. So why did I tell you not to worry? Because you don't have to on your own. Whenever you feel like you can't do what you're called to do, when you look at a passage of scripture, you look at God's law, or you simply look at your own life and you realize, I screwed up. I want you to look at John 14, verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, you might not like so much, but hold up for 16 and 17. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All of them. Not, not the most promising start, but look at what comes immediately after. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus knows we can't keep his commandments or love him properly on our own. And so we're given a helper, the ultimate helper, really. God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit, as we call it, or the spirit of truth, as it's called here. And the Holy Spirit, it says, dwells with us and is in us. As Paul reminds us in Philippians, it's God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to do the good things and even to want to do the good things. I need God working in me. I need his spirit. So whenever you're confronted with the magnitude of the task we've been given, with the greatness of the calling we've all received to be part of the household of God, to be sons and daughters of God, to advance his kingdom here on earth, when you feel inadequate, just remember, don't worry, you are inadequate. But God, working through you in his Holy Spirit, is more than adequate. His greatness shines through our weakness, And he will accomplish his good purpose in us and through us. And then thank God that he's chosen broken, miserable, weak vessels like us. 
to accomplish his good plan and thank him that we get to be a part of it. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer.